Uh, continuing our series through Deuteronomy. And we're at the point now where, if you remember, for the first three chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses is retelling the story of what happened to the Israelites. So there was the first generation of the people of Israel that were brought out of Egypt and they were brought through the wilderness toward the promised land, but they rebelled. They rebelled against God's commands. And so they then were sent uh, back into the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses is speaking to the second generation, all of the uh, children of the first generation. And he is retelling the story as a way of saying, don't let this happen again. Make sure now we are entering into the promised land. You learn from these errors of your ancestors and take the promised land. And from chapter four, Moses switches from retelling the story to now exhorting the people to actually be careful to obey every word of the Lord so that they would not only survive, but they would also thrive in the land. And this passage today is, I think, a, uh, an extremely significant passage for understanding how we as God's people engage with those around us and what God's purpose is for the wider community beyond his people. So this passage is about holy lives for the whole world. And we're just going to take the, uh, basically from verses 5 to eight. So as I was preparing this, um, I realized that I would probably have you here for about two hours if I wanted to preach everything from these eight verses. Um, so what I'm going to do is actually focus on verses five to eight. But tonight, so we, we gather every Sunday night, we gather Wednesday nights and Sunday nights to pray. But tonight, we're going to be gathering at Sarah's house who is gone. Hopefully she will come back. Um, but you, if you don't have her address, um, I can give it to you or anyone can give it to, to you. But what we'll do tonight is actually, oh, um, we're going to do it in reverse. So this morning will be verses 5 to 8. And tonight will be the first um, four verses of this chapter. And I'll just give a brief um, teaching upon that, um, about 15 or 20 minutes to sort of shape us. And then we'll spend some time praying and responding to that message tonight. So this morning will just be verses 5 to 8. So... Holy lives for the whole world. That's what this passage is about. Although the majority of the Old Testament is largely concerned with a particular people that God had called out. So the majority of the Old Testament is largely concerned with the people of Israel and their relationship with God. There are many points throughout the Old Testament where we see this bigger picture idea of God's purpose for the nations, God's purpose for the world. So in Genesis 12, you probably remember, remember the story of God appearing to Abraham, this guy from a distant land. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and you will be a blessing to many peoples. And those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And he says, in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So from Genesis, we see this bigger picture idea that God is going to call out a particular people and it will result in implications for the wider world, for all of the families of the earth. And this is what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So in the, um, from verse 5 on, Moses is explaining that I have taught you 
commands from God and you are to observe them. And if you observe them, they will become your wisdom and understanding. Verse 6, in the sight of all the peoples. So this is meant to be in the sight. They are meant to look on. And a few weeks ago, we spoke about how God took Abraham and he planted him and therefore his descendants for this land that was already occupied in the land of Canaan that was like right in the center of all of the world's powers of that day. So God wants his people to be in the sight of other people. And this is where we get the idea from the New Testament as well of God's people being a city on a hill or a light to the world. So there is a purpose. God's desire is that through his people, his name would be glorified throughout the whole world. So the church does not simply exist for itself. The church exists for the world as God's arm to achieve his purposes. We are to be a holy people for the whole world. Now, over the last thousand plus years, Christians have tried to navigate this. Christians have tried to understand how uh, we should actually be a holy people, which is to be distinct, but for the whole world. And I think there are two extremes that we have worked out, two barriers that we should avoid. And I've chosen two creatures to embody these barriers. So there's the hermit crab and then there's the chameleon. So the, the hermit crab is the first barrier that we want to avoid. This is the opposite um, end of the spectrum, the extreme on, on one end. The hermit crab Christian tries to hide out from society, tries to um, not be stained by the surrounding culture, so stays in its shell. They typically live in a Christian bubble and subscribe to the sacred-secular divide, and so everything that is secular is bad and to be avoided. So typically, hermit crab um, Christians go to Christian schools, Christian hairdressers, only invite Christians over to their house. Um, they really only associate with other Christians. And I personally think this is extremely rare in our society. I'm sure there are people, and maybe you might say it's because they're hermit crabs and so you don't actually see them, but I, I at least don't think this is um, a common thing for the vast majority of people in Australia, but nevertheless, it is something to be avoided because this is inconsistent with God's word to live in obedience in the sight of the nations. God does not want his people to retreat completely from society. So Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. He says, no one would have a lamp and then put a basket over it. You can't see anything. What's the point of it? Don't, don't um, cover your light. So we don't want to retreat completely from society. But the other barrier, the other extreme is the chameleon, which I think is much more common in our society. The chameleon Christian tries to adapt to their surrounding culture and become like it to try and fit in. So they don't want to seem different or weird. And so they try as hard as possible to seem relevant and fit into society. So sometimes this is either by intentionally dialing up certain characteristics which seem quote-unquote normal in the eyes of the world. So they might be in the workplace and make a few jokes that seem very 
crude, you know, to just show to their work colleagues, I'm not a prude, you know, I, I can joke like you guys as well. Or dialing down the characteristics which are consistent with scripture yet make them seem very quote-unquote abnormal, so very quiet about what they do on Sunday mornings or very quiet about spending time with the Lord. That's something that we hide away. It's going to make us look a bit weird. And I think this is far more common in our society, particularly as a result of the seeker-sensitive movement, which started a few decades ago, which was basically the church realizing that we don't have power, we don't have social power anymore, and so we need to kind of seem relevant to the rest of society. So we need to turn our churches more into something like a rock concert to kind of draw people in. So the idea of the seeker-sensitive movement is basing how we practice as a church on what the desires of other people who are not Christians are. So you, you're a chameleon, you try and adapt to the surrounding society. And this resulted in things like, you know, jazz cafe Sundays and creating your um, welcome area like a coffee shop from a scene in Friends or something, you know, like creating this, this environment where people are going to um, feel like they haven't actually worked, walked into a, a church. It's just kind of another area that they can practice their own faith. And I think what this did was it made people subconsciously ashamed of Christianity. It made people subconsciously ashamed of true Christianity unless it was blended with these things of the world. Don't mind my daughter. This is just her saying amen. She's passionate about this as well. Um, it also led people to believe that they can have the best of both worlds, that there is no cost to following Christ. They can actually live in the world and still be a Christian and their lives look totally the same as everyone else. And this is inconsistent with God's word to be holy because holy is set apart. It's to be different. So it's inconsistent with God's word to be holy. And Jesus also talks about this and he says, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness. He says, there's no point to it. You're worse than manure. You're just going to be trampled on. You are salt. You are distinct. Don't lose your saltiness. So these are the two barriers, the hermit crab and the chameleon, and we will do well to avoid those two barriers as we seek to be a holy people for the whole world. Now, there is a middle ground. I believe there is a middle ground for us that we are to walk and it is one where we are distinct, yet we are distinct in the midst of society. So we remain separate from the parts of society which do not conform to biblical standards. We remain separate as a witness, but then we also engage with those very areas in gracious and hospitable manners while remaining distinct. And that is hard to do because the Christian life is not easy. It is very difficult, but that is our path to remain distinct, different, yet in the midst of this society. And so that's what we see here in this passage. So in verses five to eight, this is where we get the main idea of living holy lives for the whole world. So in this passage here, Moses explains to the people 
Um, from verse five, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me so that you should do them. So make a practice of them. And in the land you are entering to take possession of it, keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. And he says, when the people look upon you living in obedience to God, they will say, wow, what a wise and understanding people. And the, the key thing here is the two the two aspects that the people look upon and see. And that is from verse seven, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes, verse eight, and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So we see in this passage a missional concern from the God of the Old Testament, who is the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, we see this missional concern where he desires his people to actually be on display for the nation. So there is an attractiveness to God's people. They are to have an attractive quality about them if they walk in obedience to God's commands. Now, we have to balance this idea of attractiveness we have to balance this idea with the reality we see in Scripture and experientially through church history of the persecution of God's people. So even when they live faithfully before the Lord, the reality is those who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And I, I need to give this um, because I've heard many people oversimplify these sort of themes, oversimplify a passage like this and kind of say, well, if God's people just live faithfully before the world, everyone will look upon and see our wisdom and they will come to Christ. They won't be able to help it. And that's an oversimplistic view. I mean, why did Paul, the Apostle Paul, get beaten half as often as he saw converts? Why did Stephen Stephen in, in Acts uh, 7 and leading on to Acts 8, this godly man who had such wisdom and he was stoned to death. Why? Why did that happen? It's not as simplistic as just saying that if we live faithfully, I mean, why were all of the prophets in the Old Testament who were arguably the faithful ones, why were they mostly loners and rejected? The reality is that we live in a fallen world and so many suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Many suppress the reality of God's righteous laws so much that they don't actually recognize virtue when it's there. And so I don't believe it's as simple to say that we just need to live in obedience to God's laws and then everyone will come. Everyone will recognize it. I think it's a bit more complex to, uh, than that. So we have to realize that, as Paul says to the Corinthians, to some, so we are the aroma of Christ, and to some, that is the aroma of life leading to life, and to others, it is the aroma of death leading to death. There is this reality here that as we walk in faithfulness, sometimes it will receive commendation, other times it will receive condemnation. But there is a particular distinctiveness. And this is the key. The key here is on um, what we are called to do and we, relieve, we, we leave the results up to God. That's his business. But our call is faithfulness to this word. 
So the key here is that there is a particular distinctiveness that should be among God's people that for Israel is noticed by the nations around them. So for Israel, this distinctiveness will be in their obedience to God's laws, which will be their wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations. And for many, this will lead to a recognition of Yahweh, the God of Israel, of Yahweh's wisdom and understanding by the way his people live in the sight of others. So there is a place clearly where this will result in recognition, commendation for God's people. And as I said here in verses seven and eight is the key. What will this, what will people actually draw out of this from the distinctness of God's people? It's firstly that God is near to his people. This is verse seven. And secondly, that God's ways are righteous. So this is what people recognize. Wow. God is near to his people. And secondly, God's ways are righteous. Now, what I want to do today is look at how this looked for the people of Israel and then bridge a gap of 3,000 years and look at how this looks in the modern church for us. This idea of God being near to his people and then his ways being righteous and that being the distinctiveness. So, For the people of Israel, for God being near to his people, the key difference between Israel's God and the God of the nations was that Yahweh actually desired to dwell among his people. That's the point. God actually desires to dwell among his people. So time and time again, God describes that his people are to dwell in this land where I will cause my name to dwell. So God is saying, I will put my name among you, which is my reputation. My reputation will be on display and even at risk because I'm going to put it right in the midst of you. And so therefore, what you do will be a reflection of me because I want to dwell among you. And so onlookers should recognize this in the lives of the Israelites. So God is not ashamed. And this is so important to understand. God is not ashamed to reveal himself as someone who desires his people to just call upon him when they bring nothing to the table, nothing at all. God knows that. And the important thing to understand the context, because obviously we know, well, God does require things of his people to walk in obedience. But the context throughout the Old Testament is always that God has delivered his people from Egypt. So he always says, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery and I led you to this promised land. And now here's how you are to live in light of my saving work. That's how God reveals himself, not Get yourself out of Egypt and then I'll come and help you. It's I have delivered you out. Now walk in obedience to me. And this is totally different to the the other gods who aren't God at all. The other gods of the nations who um, the people felt like they had to do more and more things for their God. Things like child sacrifice. Cutting themselves like we saw the Baal worshippers do before Elijah in the book of um, 1 Kings where they're on the mountain and they're just cutting themselves waiting for their God to appear, but he doesn't. Instead of that, Yahweh simply desires that his people call upon him in their day of trouble and he will deliver them 
and he will be glorified. That's Psalm 50. This beautiful picture of God saying, I don't need your sacrifices. Here's what I want you to do. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you because I'm God and I will be glorified because of that. I know that you bring nothing to the table, but I'm bridging the entire gap. I'm coming all the way to you. So it is not through the people's ascension to God, but it is through God's condescension to the people. That is part of the gospel. It's not what we can do for God. It's what God has done for us. So God wants to be near his people. And therefore, when his people live in obedience to him for Israel, there should be a deep communion which causes people around to say, wow, God is near to this people. God is near to them. The second aspect for the people of Israel is that people should look on and say, wow, God's ways are righteous. They are right. This is how the lives, so the lives of God's people in obedience were supposed to be a reflection of God. So God's laws were a reflection of him. They're a reflection of his holiness. They're a reflection of his compassion, of his generous and merciful character. And in Deuteronomy 23, there's like a, there's so many examples of this in the Old Testament, but particularly um, in slavery. So obviously slavery, a lot of people try and um, explain this idea that, you know, Christianity condones slavery um, when, you know, Christianity never perpetuated it. The reality is firstly that God is giving his laws to his people who are a very sinful people. The world is broken and that's the context. So the, the, there's no way that he could um, tell his people to live in utter perfection. That's part of the gospel. Jesus is the only one who actually does that. But for slavery in Deuteronomy 23, uh, God gives a law for what happens when a runaway slave comes to a house of an Israelite. And you kind of expect that what should happen is, well, you know, the slave is the property of the people. And so um, that they should be sent back home. But actually God says, no, no, no. If a runaway slave comes to you, you must not send him back to his master, but you must take him in and you shall do no wrong to him. Which is just radical in the ancient Near East 3,000 years ago, even a few hundred years ago. God is actually saying, no, 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 if a runaway slave comes, you bring him into your household and you, you do no wrong to him. And that was meant to be among the people of Israel. When they lived in obedience to his laws, even the wicked could not help but say, God's laws are righteous. They are just. Now that's for the people of Israel. Now let's jump 3,000 years, give or take a bit, to now, to the modern church. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we live in such a way that demonstrates a nearness to God and demonstrates that his ways are righteous. There are uh, two things we should understand about the difference between the culture of the ancient Near East, which is just basically the Middle Eastern area 3,000 years ago, um, the difference between that culture and our culture. And the first thing is that Western values or Western ethics are largely built from Christian foundations. 
So the majority of our Western idea of what is good and bad, our ethics, are built because Christianity was so dominant for over a thousand years. So Christianity, for the most part, brought care to the most vulnerable of society. There were other groups that certainly did that. So Christians can't claim a monopoly on it, but Christianity certainly brought this idea that all human beings are, are created equal and are deserving. And so particularly the most vulnerable of society, we should care for. It was Christians in the first century in Greco-Roman culture who brought care to vulnerable children who, if a female was born and typically unwanted, they were just cast out onto the streets. And that was kind of a normal thing to do. And then it was Christians who said, no way, this cannot happen. We need to bring them in. And then as a result of that, orphanages started and they saw very clearly from the Bible that um, humans are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of what they offer to society. Christians like William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade. So the ethics we hold dear today are largely based on the religious principle that human beings are created in the image of God and therefore are worthy of dignity, respect and honour, regardless. And this is important to understand because what secularism has done is it's created a bit of amnesia among us, where these virtues like care for the vulnerable and equality um, are no longer seen as Christian things to do, but they're just human things to do. So no one sees this really as a Christian thing to do. So we have taken the virtue or principle and we have disconnected it from its source, which means we can do whatever we want to it now. And that's the, the water we swim in in this culture. So I remember for the first 22 years of my life, Growing up, never really coming across any professing Christians, but I had a lot of good things done to me. And not once did I think, wow, what a lovely Christian thing to do. I just thought, well, that's a good person. Thanks, pal. And then I moved on. You don't connect the good deed to Christianity. That's just not the culture we live in. And we have to understand this because a lot of the righteous ways that we live as Christians will not stand out as distinctively Christian. They're just a human thing to do and this because ethics have been disconnected from its source which means we can chop and change as we please this leads to the second area that we have to understand how morality has shifted so i've spoken about this before christianity in our day and age is no longer seen as moral it's actually seen as immoral so while 70 years ago People would say, oh, I'm not moral enough to be a Christian. Now it's like, I'm too moral to be a Christian. I could never believe in such bigoted things as Christians do. So these areas of living in obedience to God often will not get you commendation. They will get you condemnation and rebuke. So while Christians brought equality to the table, the irony is that this has shifted and now Christians are seen as people who perpetuate inequality by not allowing or not consenting to things like same-sex marriage. So we're actually um, perpetuating inequality by trying to hold this idea of a traditional view of marriage. So it's a bit of a lose-lose situation in a lot of areas because the, the um, acts of obedience that are still seen as virtuous in our society 
are not seen as Christian things to do. They're just what is right. They're just the human thing to do. And then the areas that, that do stand out as distinctively Christian probably stand out as distinctly Christian because they are archaic and bigoted and they're not virtuous at all. And they will get you condemnation. So what do you do? What do you do in this kind of culture? How do you live faithfully with this as the surrounding culture? Well, the the point is that the context may have changed, but the call remains the same. The call to faithfulness always remains the same. And it is a liberating thing for Christians. And I hope you have a high view of God's sovereignty, a totally high view of God's sovereignty, that he is sovereign over everything, life and death, every single thing, because it is liberating to then know that if the results don't happen now, that's okay. God is still in control. It's not like he's up there being like, oh, jeepers. What happened to the 21st century? I dropped the ball on that one. God is totally in control. So the context has changed, but the call remains the same. And our call is always to faithfulness, regardless of how it is received. But there is still a place in this day and age. I believe there is still a place in this day and age for Christians to live distinctively in a way that actually does reflect something different, that isn't necessarily condemned, that reflects something different in the eyes of society. And I think the primary means that we do this is that the, um, it's the same as what we see in this passage here in Deuteronomy 4 from these two areas that the people saw. God is near and God's ways are righteous. So for us, I believe there are particular ways that we can show a nearness to God and that we can show that his ways are righteous, that do stand out as distinctive when done in the midst of society and that will glorify God. So the first aspect, showing a nearness. What does it look like to show a nearness to God for our society? This can't just be attending church. It can't just be attending church. It can't even be just calling yourself a Christian. It can't be that because in our pluralistic, relativistic society, if you say you're attending church, to most people, it just sounds like the person who goes to a brunch club on a Sunday morning or a sports team. Just sounds totally the same. That's how I would have viewed it. Oh, you're going to church. Well, I'm going to this sports club at that time. And then we'll go live lives that look exactly the same through the week. It can't just be the superficial things that we sometimes think. It has to be something that demonstrates this idea of demonstrating God's nearness. It has to be something that demonstrates a real, tangible hope in someone. A real, tangible hope that can only come from having a deep communion with our Savior. It has to be a way of life. It has to be a way of life that is enraptured with Christ in a way that stands out as distinct, distinctly different from everything else in this world that is superficial, temporary, and fleeting. It has to be different from that. I'm talking about the kind of nearness that Paul demonstrated in Philippians 3 when he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ 
my Lord. I count everything as loss. He goes on to say, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Everything, all of my credentials in Judaism, which were highly sought after, they are garbage to me. I don't care about them because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is everything to me. That is everything. And that's what stands out as distinct because often in our society, we treat Christ like this kind of elf that we have in a closet in our house and we bring him out when we have a Bible study or when we come on a Sunday and then through the week, we just say, get back in there, let me live my life. And we wonder why our lives look no different to anyone else. So this is the kind of nearness that we need. That's what, that's what is distinct about the Christian life. That's what shows to onlookers, wow, God is near to this people. There's something different. A supernatural hope that comes from deep intimacy with the truth of the world, the truth of all human history. So you might ask, that sounds kind of good, Tom. I would like some of that. How do I get it? How do I get that kind of nearness? Remember for Israel how Yahweh stood out from the foreign gods because he desired to be near to his people. So the people didn't ascend to him, but he condescended to them. And that is still the way that God acts toward his people now and primarily how God has revealed himself to us in Christ. So in Philippians Chapter 2, that beautiful chapter that's been a Christian hymn for thousands of years that talks about this idea of God's humility. And Paul says in Philippians 2, um, after he talks um, about this unity that we are to have in the body, and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is saying God. God was God, right? And God, who is Jesus, did not grasp on to all of the credentials, all of the, um, the respect that he might have as God. He didn't grasp onto that, but he actually humbled himself to the form of a servant. He humbled himself. This is God being born as a baby. I mean, I saw Eleora when she was younger, obviously, because I'm her dad, but I saw her and babies are just totally helpless, like totally helpless, totally dependent upon their parents. And that was Jesus. Isn't it mind-blowing to think Jesus was a baby? He was a baby. God was a baby in this state of helplessness, born in a manger, this state of utter humility. And that was God. He condescended so low, so low. To us, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only was his birth humble, but his death was the most humiliating death you could have hung there for everyone to see and mock for hours and hours. 
And so our nearness, our nearness to God, this nearness that we should have, which shows itself in an intimate longing to know Christ, it flows out of the simple realization that the God of heaven and earth, who is supreme over everything, has humbled himself so low to be near to us. The kind of nearness that we demonstrate in this intimacy is because we remember, we reflect, we realize God has drawn near to us. He is so near, such is his love. And that results in the same longing that Paul had that said, you know what? I don't care about everything else. I just want to know this God who who came so far to know me. I want to know him in every way. And this naturally leads to the second aspect of distinctiveness, which is to show God's righteousness. This second aspect here. So there's still a direct connection between the way Israel was to live, which was a reflection of God and now the way that we are to live is a reflection of him. So we know that we are to be obedient. We are to reflect his good character, his mercy and his generosity to live moral and upright lives. But there are particular areas in our society where we can demonstrate a righteous way of living that goes against the grain of our culture, that goes totally against the grain of our culture. And that is in lives of humility and contentment. So in Philippians 2, staying with this theme, Paul goes on to say from verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then this is the key. He goes on to say, and remember, this is on the back of him saying how humble God is by actually becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he says, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Do you see the same theme here? Do things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the sight of the world. Because, why? Because you are lights of the world as you hold fast to the word of life. Now, I wonder if you just take a moment of reflection, would you characterize your life as being free from grumbling and disputing? I know it rears its ugly head in my life, but this is what Paul is saying here. How do we demonstrate that God's ways are righteous? How do we demonstrate that God is right and just? Surely by being a people that do things without grumbling or complaining because we have a profound trust in God's goodness toward us and his complete sovereignty over everything. The grumbling and the disputing come about because we, we forget that simple truth. And how often do you hear grumbling and complaining? I worked in the public service for several years. You literally just grumble and complain. 
That's how you get your work done. So this is the same idea as Deuteronomy 4. To live in a way that demonstrates God's righteousness by having lives of humility and contentment. So for Christians, we don't seek to climb the corporate ladder for status by asserting our position, by clinging to positions of power from entitlement, because the way of Christ has always been to take the way of humility. It's always been to take the path of humility. And if God chooses to exalt you to a place of power in your position, that's his business. Personally, I wouldn't want that responsibility. Kind of ironic being a pastor, but a pastor is a servant. But we as Christians don't actually covet that place of power. We don't grumble or complain our way and saying, I deserve this place. The gospel teaches us again and again that we are undeserving. We don't deserve it. And that's the point of grace. That's the radical truth of God's mercy and grace. We don't deserve anything, yet he freely lavishes his grace upon us. That's why it's grace. We don't grumble about our workplace. We don't grumble about it because we have a profound trust in the justice and sovereignty of God over our workplace. And we know that our hope and satisfaction does not ultimately lie in our job. It doesn't lie there. Our hope and satisfaction is in Christ who has given us everything. I mean, wouldn't it be, like think about this, wouldn't it be a relief? Wouldn't it be such a relief to not have the inclination to try and assert your status or authority in the workplace. Wouldn't it be relieving to be free from that? Wouldn't that stand out as distinct, as an otherworldly way of living? Most of the time in our society, people crave position, money, status, because their identity is misplaced and they think that they, their identity is in status and power, their position, which is totally wrong. And so when they don't get it, they grumble and complain. And even when they get it, they grumble and complain because there's always going to be someone higher than you. The Christian life, which demonstrates God's righteousness, should go in the direct face in total contrast to a self-seeking, grumbling society. That's the Christian life of today. That's how it stands out as distinct. So we do all things without grumbling and complaining because we live in the reality where God who is sovereign over everything, we live in this reality where the God who made everything, who set the planets into orbit, who created the universe as big as it is and who will bring true justice. We live in the world where he, this God, has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. He has drawn near to us. He is worthy of every single thing, worthy of all of your thoughts, your aspirations, your ambitions, worthy of everything because of how humble he is, because of what he has done to bring you in to his presence, because of how near he is drawn. So this is how we live holy lives for the whole world. So firstly, 
We live in the reality of Christ's utter humility to draw near to us. That's where, that's how we demonstrate nearness because we reflect and live in this beautiful reality that he has drawn near to us. And the overflow of that is that we have an otherworldly desire and hope in him, which considers everything else garbage, everything else garbage, because we know it's fleeting, it's temporary. Yes, the world God has made is good and all things are to be enjoyed, but that is because they point and are leading toward this God who is supreme over everything, our whole lives. Every breath you take, every blink of your eyes is carrying you on this trajectory where you will stand before this holy God and you will either be with him in his presence for all eternity or you will be separated for all eternity. And we know, for those who have trusted in Christ, we know he has drawn near to us to keep us in that place. We know that he is strong and faithful to keep us near to him. And so secondly, in light of that, we demonstrate God's righteousness by seeking to live in humility and contentment in the face of a prideful and discontent society. That's what stands out as distinctive. Verse 